So yes, I wanted to start by just saying a big welcome to everyone and to take a moment just to acknowledge that we are here, that we all got ourselves here together for this retreat over New Year. And I had been going to say at the end of what had been a pretty challenging year, but we've got a pretty challenging situation right here and right now. So as I said, this is alive for us now. And it takes effort, it takes persistence, it takes determination, it takes some steadiness to get ourselves here and to show up. Certainly that was true for me coming from Aotearoa, New Zealand on Monday. All the changes there, navigating the Australian federal government and the Australian state government and the New Zealand government and the airlines and all of the different changes over the weeks. Each week, it seemed like a new set of rules and processes came in. And as we know, it's shortened our retreat by a day. So it had impacts on me. It had impacts on Di, the manager, and Alan, and of course, all of you. So I just wanted to thank you for making that effort to stay steady through all of the uncertainty. And through all of this, we can come together and try to support each other in this process that I named in the retreat description as healing the heart, refining the mind, and finding freedom. So... Maybe that sounds like a big task to accomplish in eight days. Heal the heart, refine the mind, find freedom. But just to appreciate what we're doing here, it's a rare and beautiful thing to put aside all the clamor of the world for over a week and really focus on cultivating our hearts and our minds, learning how to understand ourselves better so that when we re-engage with our everyday lives, we can understand other people better too. And we're in a much better position to meet all of the various challenges of our lives with more wisdom, with more compassion. So that's just a brief orientation of what we'll be doing here over the next eight days. But tonight, I was, would like to try and ease us in a little gently. So introducing myself just a bit because I don't know all of you yet. So there'll be an opportunity in a few moments to hear just a few words from each of you just to help to start developing our retreat community, our retreat sangha to use the traditional Pali word. So Pali being the ancient Indian language that these Buddhist teachings were transmitted in. So Sangha means community, specifically a community of people who are interested in practicing meditation and in following the ethical framework that supports us to look more carefully at our hearts and our minds and to meet ourselves with kindness. So in that spirit, meeting together here, welcoming to our community here at the Brahma Kumari Centre, so my name is Jill Shepherd, and as you may hear from my accent, I'm not from Australia, though I did live in Australia for seven years in Melbourne and then in Blue Mountains in New South Wales, where I managed a 
Insight Meditation Center, and that's how I met uh, quite a few of you here. I also spent seven years on staff at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and again, some of you have been there, spent time there. If you don't know it, it's in some ways the mothership for our whole insight, Western insight tradition. So IMS was set up back in 1976 by Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. So in some ways, they're like the grandparents of this whole tradition, what we has become known as the Western insight tradition. So while I was living at IMS, I had the opportunity to go through a four-year insight meditation teacher training. And Joseph Goldstein and Gil Fransdell from the West Coast were my main mentors. And then since finishing that, I've been teaching all around the world, mostly the U.S., Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand, sometimes Europe and the U.K. And thanks to COVID, I'm now pretty much based in Auckland, New Zealand. Before COVID, I used to come to Australia several times a year to teach in Sydney in the Blue Mountains, and I've missed it. So I'm personally really delighted to be back in this part of the world and just to smell the smell of the gum trees and to hear the birds that has powerful associations for me with the people of this land and the wild creatures. Okay, so that's just a few facts about me, just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from, literally, metaphorically. And I'd like to hear a little bit from each of you, if you're willing. Because we're a relatively large group, though, and my aspiration is not to have this session go too long for tonight, I thought, rather than doing a kind of biography or a retreat CV or your meditation history, just to have a kind of check-in to hear, how are you now? So we can do this as a mindfulness practice. Now, most of you are pretty experienced meditators, but for a few of you, this is your first retreat. So to begin with just a very simple definition of mindfulness, being aware of our experience, just as it is, without reactivity of any kind. Not liking it or disliking it, but just being present for what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart, what's happening in the mind. So right there, I've named three distinct areas of experience that we can pay attention to. First one, mindfulness of the body. Just knowing what is happening in your physical experience, how the body feels, either overall or in terms of specific sensations. So, for example, perhaps for some of you, the body's feeling heavy or light, tired or energized. Perhaps there are one or two areas of discomfort, or perhaps there are some pleasant sensations somewhere. So you can just notice that right now. How is your body? Just silently naming to yourself. What is your physical experience now? And then the other two areas I mentioned, the heart and the mind, 
They're sometimes brought together a sort of hyphenated heart-mind. And this is because in English, when we hear the word mind, we often think of just the intellect. But in the context of the Buddha's teachings, the term mind also includes what we would normally think of as emotions or feelings. So when I use the word heart, I'm using that as shorthand for our emotions, our feelings. So again, you can just silently ask yourself, how's my heart right now? And just to notice if there are specific emotions or feelings. Perhaps, understandably, some flickers of anxiety, maybe some excitement, maybe some uncertainty, maybe some gratitude. Many different emotions might be present. And we just know what our experience is without judging it. Then in terms of the mind, that includes thinking. And maybe some of those qualities of mind that don't necessarily have an emotional aspect to them. So we can ask ourselves, how is the mind right now? Maybe you notice the mind's a little dull, or it's bright, alert. Perhaps there's a lot of thinking, or maybe already not so much thinking. So the mind could be scattered or settled, contracted or open. So this is just one way of bringing awareness to our experience right now, and we'll be practicing a lot over the coming days. So for now, you don't need to get too caught up in analyzing exactly what it's what. But just to see if you can find three words that give a kind of snapshot of how you are now. So how's the body? How's the heart? How's the mind? So, for example, if I was doing it, the body still feels still. The heart, it's open. The mind, it's clear, alert. So my three words might be still, open, and clear. Now just to acknowledge for some of you, your words might be quite different. You might be feeling restless, irritable, shut down. That is okay. It's useful information. So you don't need to censor your experience to try and make it fit some idea. You're just naming three words that are true for you. Okay, so I'll just open it to hear from any of you. You might say your name, where you came from, and then your three words. Clear enough? It's really useful to hear the range of different experiences in this hall, both among all of you, but also internally. How many people said, you know, their body maybe felt unpleasant, but their heart-mind was grateful, and vice versa. So, really interesting to see. It's like a, almost like a kaleidoscope, right, of all these different qualities changing and shifting, arising and disappearing. So right there is one of the key insights that all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing us to, the truth of impermanence, the truth of change. So however your experience is right now, at some point, maybe very quickly, it will be different if you allow it to be 
don't fight it, don't resist it in any way. Now, of course, that's also true if your experience happens to be pleasant at the moment. But again, the instructions are the same. Don't hold on, don't resist, just allow what is. So one way that we can think of this overall attitude of accepting and allowing is as an expression of generosity. Generosity, which as many of you know, is one of the foundational qualities of heart and mind that the Buddha encouraged everyone to develop to support the deepening of our meditation practice. So tonight I'd like to orient us to this quality of generosity or dana as a resource that will help us to enter more fully into our retreat together. And for me at least, this quality of generosity is maybe even more necessary for this particular retreat because of all the challenges that we've had to navigate to get here. And even without that, in my own experience of going on retreat, I try to do at least a month of retreat every year, and I'm always amazed how much effort it takes just to extricate from the complexities of our daily life and get ready to live more simply in a more contemplative life while we're on retreat. So congratulations to all of you for getting all of those outer practical issues sorted out and then also for navigating all the inner challenges. Perhaps those are even more intense for this retreat than others. And I want to really acknowledge that because in ordinary society, maybe the dominant culture that most of us live in, it's not very good at acknowledging transitions. Perhaps more and more these days we tend to treat ourselves like machines or like computers, thinking we should be able to just plug and unplug, flick a switch, swipe left, swipe right, next, next, next. Here we are, let's get on with it, meditation. We forget that we are human beings with organic flesh and bone bodies and nervous systems that need time to orient to change. So although your physical bodies might be sitting here in the room right now, I'm guessing that at times your hearts and minds might be somewhere else. In fact, some of you might not be hearing a word I'm saying right now. Well, obviously some of you are, because you laughed. But I'm guessing at times some of you are half listening and half thinking about that work project that you didn't quite finish. Or did you really lock the back door when you left? Or did you remember to tell your partner X, Y, or Z while you were away? So just to emphasize how normal and natural it is. And still, many of us believe we should be able to just switch off and immediately get ourselves into retreat mode. And then if, when that doesn't happen, we can try even harder to force ourselves to get with the program, as they say, which some of you recognize just makes that whole tiredness even worse than it already was. So just to acknowledge it's very common to spend the first few days of a retreat battling with stress, exhaustion, frustration, self-judgment. Anybody had that experience? <laughs> I know I have. 
So for this retreat, to try to avoid that whole syndrome, I'd like to orient us to the spirit of generosity and invite us to ease in to the usual retreat structure, to take time to fully arrive here and try to have this be a more humane and conscious transition from our everyday lives out there to slowing down, to the simplicity, to the silence of being on retreat. So I'll be saying more about all of that tomorrow. Today I'd like to just start this retreat with this invitation into generosity. Because this is what the Buddha did whenever he was teaching people he didn't know. He didn't immediately dive into meditation instruction. Instead he talked about the value of generosity. And that's because generosity is pretty much a universally valued quality, right? Most people agree, at least in principle, that being generous is a good thing. It has practical benefits for us and for others. Many of you mentioned in the check-in just then a feeling of gratitude and appreciation. That's also an aspect of generosity. So how does generosity come about? It comes through being able to step out of a narrow, self-focused orientation to the world. It requires us to open our hearts, open our minds. And again, quite a few of you mentioned that. That openness of heart and mind makes us more receptive to taking in new ideas, to trying out new practices, and to learning new ways of being in the world. So this expression of generosity is a lot more nuanced than we might think of, particularly in the West, where many of you are familiar with the term dana, which is how generosity is, uh, generosity is the translation of the Pali word dana. And unfortunately in the West, we often hear of dana at the end of a retreat, where it's just about giving a donation. I say just about, I mean that is important. I wouldn't be sitting here with all of you. This center wouldn't exist. Sim, Sydney Insight Meditators, wouldn't happen without that kind of dana. But underlying the generosity is the motivation to open, to give, to share, and so forth. And in the Buddha's teachings, this is known by a different word, chaga. So chaga is that heart quality of generosity that makes the gift possible. And it's chaga that allows that willingness to benefit others, to benefit ourselves. And from that spirit of generosity, so many other beautiful qualities of heart and mind flow. Qualities such as kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and gratitude and equanimity and steadiness, and interest, and calm, and so on. So this is yet another reason that the Buddha made chaga and dana the foundation of the practice, because it feels good. It sets up a positive feedback loop that makes us want to continue with the practice. So just to get a sense of that, you might take a moment right now, think about your experience of coming to this retreat, how you managed to get here. No doubt there were many aspects of generosity that have made that possible. 
perhaps just signing up for the retreat was an act of generosity to you yourself. But perhaps too, a friend or a neighbor is taking care of your pets or your plants while you're away. Maybe somebody picked you up from the train station. Maybe somebody lent you a meditation cushion or a shawl. There's probably many different ways that generosity fed into your ability to be here today. So just for a moment in silence, see if you can tune in to any generosity that you have received that helped you to be here. As you tune in to that experience of receiving generosity, you don't need to name what the thing was itself, but right now, how does it feel to remember receiving that generosity? Again, what do you notice in the body, the heart, the mind as you take in the generosity that's helped you to be here? Anybody? Just one word. Openness. Openness. Thank you. Humbled. Humbled. Lovely. Sweet. Sweet. Embarrassed. Embarrassed. Yeah, it's hard sometimes to receive generosity, isn't it? The similar maybe humbled, embarrassed, but also sweet. Anything else? Supported. Supported. Lovely. Mm. Consistent. 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 Can you say a little more? How about? Right. So many small moments of generosity building and sort of launching you to be here. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So you get a sense that. For the most part, generosity feels good. And it leads pretty naturally to the second step on this path, which is the commitment to non-harming, to ethical conduct. So the Buddha presented this commitment as another form of generosity, actually. He talked about it as giving ourselves and each other the gift of non-harming. And he named it as the gift of fearlessness. Fearlessness. Because when we're committed to not hurting each other in any way, other people have nothing to fear from us. And we ourselves don't have anything to fear in terms of being caught out or punished or blamed or shamed and so on. So as most of you know, at the start of a meditation retreat, it's traditional to make this formal commitment to non-harming by taking these five ethical training precepts. And as many of you know, it's the commitment to not kill living beings, to not steal, to not misuse our sexual energy, to not lie, and to not take intoxicants. And I'll go into them in just a little bit more detail before I recite them, because as with all aspects of the Buddha's teachings, 
they can be understood at first on fairly simple, straightforward levels. But as the practice deepens, they become more and more refined. So they may start as a list of what not to do, what to refrain from, but they develop to become positive expressions of care and compassion. So I've given you uh, different variations of those, uh, the traditional refraining from and then expanding into the positive actions that we can take. I know though from my own experience how easy it can be just to sort of relate to these precepts as a kind of formula that we, you know, we just go through it at the start of a retreat because it's traditional. But in the last few years, I've started to really appreciate and understand more clearly the importance of having a strong ethical foundation for our practice. Perhaps one reason it's taken me a long time to come to this understanding is, I think like many of us in the West, I came to practice by learning how to meditate. And often we have some belief or some hope that if we meditate, it's going to have a beneficial effect on the rest of our lives. But what is sometimes less clear is that the rest of our lives has an effect on our meditation. Our meditation practice doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's a two-way relationship. What we do outside of formal meditation, it has a big effect on what happens when we sit down to cultivate our hearts and minds. So as many of you know, as the practice develops, we start to see how even quite minor, unskillful behavior can have a big impact on our meditation. But as our commitment to ethical conduct gets more refined, we see the benefits, more stability of mind, more calmness, more concentration, more clarity. And that clarity helps us to recognize if, when, we're acting unskillfully and to help us refrain from that. So again, there's a positive feedback loop here between ethical conduct and the deepening of our meditation practice. And it all starts with these five training precepts. So we can think of these as an extension of generosity. And just very briefly, the first one, to refrain from killing living beings, it can be expressed positively as a commitment to act with reverence for all forms of life. So it becomes an expression of compassion. It's no longer just about avoiding harmful behavior, but it becomes an active movement towards the relief of suffering. In a similar way, the second precept, to refrain from taking what has not been freely offered, not stealing, it can be expressed positively as a commitment to, it, to practice contentment with what we have, contentment or gratitude. So we can see it as a form of relinquishment, letting go of desire for what belongs to others, and instead cultivating appreciation, gratitude. Then the third precept, to refrain from misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm, again, it's expressed in its positive form as respect for ourselves and for others' relationships. 
Now, in the context of a retreat, this precept is about maintaining celibacy, so refraining from all forms of sexual activity. It's also an opportunity to notice maybe some of the habitual patterns that we might have around our sexual energy and making the choice to not feed those patterns. And again, this is a kind of a gift to just let others be. And so it supports an inner quietness, which in turn supports the fourth precept, which is to refrain from false speech, to refrain from telling lies, to commit to being truthful. And again, in the context of a retreat, it's a commitment to maintain what's known as noble silence. So for those of you who haven't done a residential (coughs) insight retreat before, I'll just say a little bit about what this noble silence includes, because at first it might seem a little foreign or strange. So on the most obvious level, it's about not talking to each other, not communicating even through facial expressions or body language, but again, just giving each other space, letting each other be in safety and in peace. So it involves dropping maybe our more conventional, habitual ways of interacting, not chatting. And instead, we're invited into a deeper form of friendliness. So we're getting to know ourselves more fully in the silence, so that when the retreat is over, we can get to know each other more fully too. So this idea of befriending, we can see it in the fourth precept also, in how we talk to ourselves. So the noble silence sometimes highlights when we're not communicating out there how much we're communicating in here internally. And sometimes it can be quite shocking to listen to how we talk to ourselves and to see, again in my own experience at times, that not everything we say is in alignment with this precept. There can be harsh judgment, criticism, half-truths, lies, distortions. So if we're serious about taking this fourth precept, we want to also pay attention to our inner language and see if we can begin to orient it in the direction of kindness, goodwill and friendliness. So noble silence is about paying attention to our inner and our outer words. It also includes not reading or writing during the retreat and not using mobile phones or any kind of technology during the retreat. Now again, for many people, this can be quite a challenge. We're so used to being with our devices in all of our waking hours. We might not even realize the effect that they have on our minds. And it might be easy to think, well, sending a quick text, what's the harm in that? Or just checking my social media every now and then, or having a quick game before I go to sleep. But what you start to realize is it has an effect. It creates a ripple of agitation, can serve anxiety and aversion. Again, I'm speaking from my own experience here on retreats when I gave into temptation and just one little and then I get a message that required me to do something and then it blew, you know, you know how it is. So it's so easy to get caught up and entangled. And we want to try and put aside that. 
So tomorrow we'll have an opportunity to formally renounce or relinquish our devices. This is done on most of the retreat centers where I teach these days, just as a support for the practice. So people are invited to hand in their phones for safekeeping. And we can do that officially tomorrow, so you have a whole day just to sense into how you feel about that and if it feels okay. And part of this um, leans over into the last precept, which is about refraining from taking intoxicants. So traditionally that's things like alcohol and recreational drugs. But these days many teachers include (coughs) our relationship to technology as an intoxicant, because again, for me, at times it can feel like it has that compulsive, addictive aspect to it. So the fifth precept is about avoiding recreational intoxicants that cloud the heart and the mind, which obviously are counterproductive to the clarity that we're trying to develop. But more broadly, we can notice what are we taking in? What are we consuming? What are we ingesting? In the, what are we taking into our bodies, our hearts, and our minds? And doing our best to just release where we have a more addictive relationship to things. So I'd like to just uh, go through these precepts, uh, name them out loud for you. Uh, again, thanks to the suggestion for we're going to refrain from being generous with our um, chanting voices. And so I will go through them, and you might just silently recite them to yourselves as you hear them. I'll offer the Pali, then the English, and then the positive version. And if you feel comfortable, sometimes it's traditional to just bring the hands together as a sign of respect. It's optional. Panati pata veramani sikha padam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to practice compassionate action. Adinadana veramani sikha padam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training to practice contentment. Kame su michachara veramani sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to practice responsibility in all my relationships. Musawada veramani sikapadam samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to practice noble silence during the retreat and true kind speech in daily life. Sura Maria Maja Pamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samariyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants, which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. I undertake the training to care for my body and my mind. 
idame silam magapalanyanasa pachayo hotu. May this virtue of mine help bring about knowledge of the path and its fruit. So thank you. I hope you can feel a sense of appreciation for having made that commitment to support your own practice, to support all of our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.